A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 122, questions 5. Today, the whole episode is dedicated to your 9th century questions about Byzantium. But we've had so many come in that I'll have to deal with some next time in our recap and preview episode. Anyway, let's get cracking. We've talked a lot about the state and the office holders which it employed, and on that topic, listener S asks whether the civil, military, and religious bureaucracies represented a deep state, one capable of surviving even a violent regime change with a minimum of disruption to the daily business of life. I think that's a very perceptive question, and largely I would say yes. While the Romans hadn't developed a formal exam system as existed in China, there was, as you know, a limited but very widely accepted education system. And this was the one which taught Homer and Euripides and Aristophanes and various other great authors. It emphasized proper Greek and how to master rhetoric. You would also learn scripture and those who pursued an ecclesiastical career had many works by the church fathers to read. That syllabus of acceptable literature meant that men of the middle and upper classes would all speak the same language, as it were. They would all understand how to conduct themselves and what the ideals of administration were. A wealthy family with several sons might diversify their career paths. The eldest would join the army, aiming to one day become a general. The second might become a priest on the path to being the local bishop. The third might be sent to Constantinople to further his education and join the bureaucracy, and the fourth might be castrated in the hopes of becoming a palace eunuch and advisor to the emperor. The latter was not a common choice for every family. Um, the practice was illegal, remember, but the point being that the recognized paths to a career in each part of the state were well established, and the rewards were such that few great families ignored the opportunities. In that sense, listener S is exactly right. If a generation were lost in an Arab invasion or a civil war, there was no shortage of younger brothers with the correct education to take their place. I should point out, though, that record-keeping was not nearly as efficient as it is today. 
Often I read in the narrative that great works of the past are lost or only discovered in the palace library after much searching. Compared to their barbarian neighbours, the Romans kept a lot of records, but it was not necessarily well organised. One example of this are the tax registers, which could only be updated every decade or so. A year after completion, they were already out of date, and one of the magnate tricks was to bribe officials to leave new land off the registers. As long as the government got the same amount as last year, they would be none the wiser. Listener A.W. asks, what, if any, symbols did the Empire use by this period? What took the place of the eagles and SPQR? As you probably remember from the narrative, Constantine's choice of the labarum had been consciously imitated by his successors, while crosses and even icons were used to lead troops into battle, or the image from an icon or pictures of the Virgin Mary might be put onto banners. Uh, we've also talked about legions developing their own special insignia. Uh, these would decorate the round shields of the troops, or uh, also be turned into banners. Heraldry, as we might find it in Western Europe, will develop over time, including eventually a Byzantine flag or coat of arms. I've put an image of it up on the website and social media. A listener EM asked about this. And uh, for those of you not looking, it is an image of a double-headed eagle. Uh, the eagle was, of course, a long-standing Roman symbol, but this one uh, has a history in Anatolia dating back to Hittite times. As the great magnate families begin to develop their own house crests, the eagles will become a popular symbol. Eventually, they will be adopted by the imperial family in the 13th century and come to be associated with the empire itself. Listener KC asks about prices and wages. Do we have any examples or lists of these? Uh, what would a nomisma or solidus, a gold coin, actually get you? Please remember that the information I'm about to pass on varied considerably across time and place. Do not take it as definitive. But... Unskilled workers and labourers at Constantinople might be able to earn one nomisma a month if there was work available. Uh, sailors were sometimes paid only three coins a year, but it was expected that they would have regular work on merchant or fishing ships in the meantime. Uh, ditto a soldier who was paid just nine nomisma per annum, but would be likely to have his own farm. Skilled workers commanded higher wages. A carpenter might take 16, a colker 18, uh, a good shopkeeper might make about that in a year. Uh, once you get into the bureaucracy, you could earn 20 to 30 as a notary or secretary, and it just keeps climbing from there. Because copper coins easily lost their value, shopkeepers would weigh them rather than count them and the number of coppers to a gold coin varied considerably, from 180 to about 290 by our period. Uh, having said that, 
two good quality copper coins would allow you to buy a pound of cheap bread, and a little more would get you ten mackerel, or two kilos of other fish, or a little wine. Meat was more expensive, but it was clearly not difficult to feed your family even on a stone worker's wage. Small dwellings could be rented at the capital for one or two gold coins a year, which again was affordable. For one gold coin, you could buy sturdy kitchen equipment like a cauldron or a fine belt for those with more to spend. Doctors would only charge a third of a coin for a consultation, but a whole one for follow-up treatment. At least eight will be needed to get you that hernia operation. Half a coin might buy you a sheep, but you'd need three to buy a cow. A month's journey to Alexandria would cost only two coins, but you'll need plenty more when you get there. If you're in the market for slaves, I can sell you this orphaned child for five, or if you need a domestic servant, I have one for twenty. If you'd like a musician or a skilled teacher, that could run you over a hundred. I can sell you a horse for fifteen, or this all-weather coat for eight. I have a beautiful decorated copy of the gospel if you've got twenty-eight on you. And if you are a truly blessed individual, then may I show you this wonderful silk garment, an absolute steal, at seventy-two nomisma. For the magnates amongst you, I have some good land available at ten coins per hectare. After all, the law doesn't consider you rich unless you own 144 coins worth of property. And I have a friend in the harbour who will build you a ship of your own for the princely sum of 432. Listener P asked whether a church service in, say, 525 A.D., would be recognisable to a modern Orthodox churchgoer. And I have to say a big thank you to several listeners on the Facebook page who helped me put together a brief answer. Uh, The core of the traditional liturgy would still be recognisable to a Byzantine, uh, though it would be far from identical. Specific parts have grown and developed or have been moved around. Uh, They might be surprised to start the service inside the building rather than entering in a procession uh, or seeing the whole congregation standing for communion, uh, things like that. If you'd like me to go into more detail about liturgical matters next century, then let me know. Listener SB asks, Do you think iconoclasm is overrated? It always seemed like one of the sexy subjects of Byzantine history, but recent research seems to downplay both its role as a motivator and the actual violence to humans and icons. History will always be reduced to a few memorable incidents and quotes in the public imagination, and I suppose it has to be. There's just too much information out there for the intricacies to be commonly understood. In our modern world, the first major work on a subject can often leave a lasting impression. Edward Gibbon's work on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire is a perfect example of this. His dismissive attitude towards Byzantium plays a part in the lack of knowledge or interest in later Roman history. 
So the earliest reports on Byzantine iconoclasm uh, took for granted the words of Nicephorus and Theophanes and assumed that book burning and icon smashing went on presumably in the sort of nightmare montage that we all know from films and TV shows. Because no iconoclast sources survive to contradict them, and because the current residents of Anatolia are less interested in the archaeology of Byzantium, it's hard to even guess what actually happened. But the work of modern scholars does suggest that what Nicephorus and Theophanes did was model the suffering of the iconophiles on the martyrdoms of early Christians. Perhaps there really were some book burnings and monk beatings, but the guesswork of today's historians suggests that this really wasn't common. This absence of concrete information is in part what makes iconoclasm a sexier subject because the vacuum is filled with enterprising historians, all playing detective, and coming up with fascinating theories about what might have happened. But sadly, for those hoping for the sight of medieval torture chambers, I can only report what seems most convincing to me. So I don't know if I would say that it's overrated, but certainly the current academic consensus presents us with a less turbulent narrative to go with. Listener CP asked if I could comment on the theory that Leo the Armenian, Leo V, was in actual fact the grandfather of Basil I. This has been proposed by one scholar, but as I haven't mentioned it before, you can tell where I'm leaning. Both men were of Armenian origin, and there is a suggestion in one source that one of Basil's forebears was a Leo. But this information comes from the court of Constantine VII, as in Basil's grandson, so there is a good chance that the information isn't entirely accurate. The theory also seems to rely on Leo either having a daughter we don't know about, or that one of his sons fathered a child before they were all castrated and sent into exile. It seems a bit far-fetched, but who knows? If it was true, perhaps Basil kept it deliberately quiet because he wanted to get in with the Amorian dynasty, who, as you know, had begun their reign with Leo's murder. I suppose if Basil really was related to Leo, then his murder of Michael III was sweet revenge for Michael II killing Leo. But I think we've drifted into historical fiction. All the evidence we have point to Basil's origins being obscure. If he was related to the ex-emperor, you'd think he would have mentioned it at once he was safely in power. Listener PC asks about Vardan Turkus, the man who Leo the Armenian, Michael of Amorium, and Thomas the Slav all worked for before he was exiled for rebelling against Nicephorus. Listener PC asks if this is the first appearance of someone of influence originating from the Turkic tribes. I think the answer here is no, as in Listener PC goes on to say that the Turks he's thinking of are the Seljuk and Ottomans who will of course play a big part in our story. But the Turks who the Byzantines were thinking of were simply any kind of steppe nomad. 
Roman chauvinism was on clear display when it came to the horse archers from the north. For centuries, they had called all these people Scythians, simply because the tribes of Herodotus' day used that name. Here in the 9th century, the term Turk has become a catch-all. It's at least a little more accurate, since many steppe tribes, including the Khazars and the Pechenegs, did indeed use a Turkic language. However, the Byzantines weren't worried about accuracy. In his Tactica, Leo VI referred to the Magyars, those Finno-Ugric speakers, as Turks too. Vardan Turkus was known to his contemporaries as an Armenian. That name Vardan is from the mountains. You may remember the brief reign of the emperor Vardan the Armenian. The nickname Turkus could be a compliment on his riding or his ferocity, but since we only get the name from our histories, it's entirely possible that it was a disparaging nickname applied after he rebelled against the emperor. In this case, then, the Turk reference would not be a nod to his ancestry, but a repudiation of his civility. Listener E.L. asks, what impact did Byzantium's huge monastic orders have on their military manpower? I suspect the answer is very little. Despite many monasteries being founded, a lot of them were probably no more than a sort of wealthy country house. A central core of brothers might be formed, but the estate itself was then worked by ordinary tenants, uh, rather than teams of monks. As I've mentioned before, the wealthy often founded monasteries as a sort of tax-avoidance scheme. They could preserve the family estate more easily if they turned their home into a religious foundation shielding it from many of the exactions of the state. Giving up on family, money, and sex isn't something that most human beings yearn for, and if the people had begun flocking to take holy orders at such a rate that it threatened the theme armies, the emperors would definitely have stepped in and legislated against it. Listener DRU asks, Were there any significant works of literature? plays or poetry written after the fall of Rome? This is another of those questions where the answer lies in what has been preserved rather than what was written. So yes, of course, literature has been produced throughout the period of our podcast, but for it to survive into the modern day, it had to be copied and copied, otherwise the paper decays and the work is lost. And for it to be copied, it had to have advocates who would pay for this to be done. Our podcast narrative began in 476, well into an era where Christianity was coming to dominate the culture of Byzantium. Professional teachers, scholars, and philosophers were going out of fashion, and it was they who had produced much of the great Greco-Roman literature. Justinian took an axe to that tree by banning pagans from teaching, closing the school at Athens, and promoting Christian works. The plague, and then the rise of the caliphate, crushed what remained of literary culture. In the past, wealthy senators would act as patrons to poets and writers, but for the next 200 years, people's money was tied up in protecting their land. 
what was produced in the meantime was largely Christian. Theophanes, a monk, and Nicephorus, the patriarch, both wrote history. Guides for monasteries, hymns, hagiography were all produced. There is some secular poetry which has survived. No plays, though, but actual philosophical productions had ceased long before the Byzantine era. The pantomime that didn't require clever scripting was the popular uh, play of the 5th and 6th centuries. Uh, The literary culture had changed, but there was still quality on display in what was produced, Uh, but obviously the groups with the resources to do lots of copying were now the church and the monasteries, and so it's largely their literature which survived from the 7th and 8th centuries. An actual revival in learning and the production of a wider range of literature grew in the ninth century. We saw this particularly towards the end of the narrative. Theophilus reopened a university in the palace, the first such institution since Heraclius's day, and a series of scholars now appear, including Cyril and Methodius, who translated the Gospels for the Slavs, Photius, the patriarch who wrote diplomatic letters, religious treatises, and some of the laws which went into Basil's law books. And we also have our emperor, Leo the Wise, who wrote sermons, poems, speeches, laws, guides, and, of course, the Tactica. To give you more of an insight into the issue of literature, we can glance at a work which Photius produced. Even amongst his enemies, the patriarch was known to be incredibly well-read, in part because he noted down every book he'd ever read in a collection entitled The Bibliotheca, The Library. The work was addressed to his brother and was presumably a guide to all the books that he had access to in the capital. He gives summaries and brief comments on all 400 of them, It's an invaluable commentary because about half of the works he mentions are now lost. The books are split roughly in half between pagan and Christian or Jewish authors, and they cover a wide range of subjects including maths, science, medicine, history, ethnography, and of course, theology. The earliest text is Herodotus's history, and the latest is a history which Photius's own father had produced. But to demonstrate the decline in literary culture, only 30 authors are mentioned who wrote between the coming of the Arabs and Photius's day, whereas the 4th century AD alone is represented by a hundred different works. Over the next few centuries, the Byzantines will enjoy a cultural revival And if you remind me when we get there, I will tell you all about it. Listeners SH and RW asked about chariot racing and the deems. Uh, The brief answer is that chariot races were still held in the 9th century, but only a few times a year. The blue and green factions still ran the show, but they were state employees, and there were few rich layabouts or unemployed youths to form the clubs who'd terrorised the population back in Justinian's day. But 
I did record a two-part Byzantine story about chariot racing, and I went deep into how the races were run, how the factions operated, why there was so much crowd violence in the 6th century, and why it all went away. There is an hour and a half of material waiting for you, all wrapped up with the story of Porphyrius, the charioteer. Listener AR asks, what about polo and other sports? Well, polo seems to have been imported from Persia by Theodosius II, and a course was marked out within the palace. We don't hear a lot about it after that, though Basil was apparently a big fan. When we actually get a description of the game in the 12th century, it sounds more like lacrosse played on horseback, so no mallets but sticks with nets. It's described as a very dangerous game. The emperors continued to hunt, of course, and Basil supposedly suffered a fatal wound while on one. And for the wider public, we hear of wrestling, archery, running, and fencing competitions all taking place at the big church festivals or market fairs. Listener A.W. wanted more information on the Jews. What was their life like between the various attempts to convert them? Uh, This is a subject we are not hugely well informed about, but to answer your list of questions, uh, yes, they could own land, Uh, no, they could not buy court positions or serve in the imperial bureaucracy, no, I doubt they identified as Romans. Christian belief was too tied up in that now. Perhaps some yearned for the caliphate to swallow the empire, but I suspect that the Jewish communities which survived did so because they were happy with their lot. They were local landowners and, yes, had their own synagogues, and as long as they paid their taxes, it seems they were largely left alone. The complete absence of Jewish people from the histories, in part because they couldn't have official roles and the paucity of archaeology, means I really can't be more helpful than that. But when they turn up in the narrative, I will go into greater detail. Several listeners asked about buildings and infrastructure. Did the Byzantine revival lead to new building projects? And hopefully my comments about the state of Anatolian architecture will give you a clue as to my answer. There was certainly building going on, but we only know about churches and monasteries which survived and uh, the odd reconstruction of a town wall. Uh, Of course, we do hear about the alterations to the palace because they're mentioned in the written histories. Um, The main military road was maintained, but it always had been through the extraordinary levies mentioned last episode. Uh, Towns and cities were beginning to recover, but they were not yet a source of big investment. The magnates preferred to create huge ranches rather than invest in urban sites, which were still vulnerable to raids. So I'm afraid I can't regale you with talk of grand buildings or aqueducts, but at the end of the next century I will do a big episode on Constantinople itself, and by then I may be able to talk more about infrastructure. I should also say that I am building reading lists for single-topic episodes on gender and sexuality, engineering and science, and possibly citizenship. 
all of those require a lot more research because I have to learn about the topic in general and what was possible in other contemporary societies to know how Byzantium compares. As you know, these end-of-the-century tours take long enough, as it is, so I don't want to keep you waiting for too long before getting back to the narrative. But rest assured, I will get to them eventually, and your questions have been logged. We've now reached the final three for today, and each of them required no research, which I must say a big thank you for. Listener NH asks, You spend so much time studying the Romans and trying to understand them. Do you ever find yourself identifying with them? Do the Romans ever become us instead of them? A fantastic question, which I threw back at listener NH, who said that yes, he finds himself rooting for the Romans as the home team, as it were. And that's certainly how I found myself feeling when listening to the history of Rome. On an intellectual level, we all know that the Romans did many horrible things, and that to call them the Romans when they uh, cover a thousand years and so many different peoples is in itself a bit misleading. But as interesting as history is, I think it's only natural to develop an emotional investment in the people you're hearing about. A bit like watching an animal in a nature documentary, you quickly begin hoping it will survive the challenges ahead of it rather than suffer a nasty fate. I think in the case of the Romans, there is the added bonus that so many of us across Europe, America, and the Middle East can think of them as our ancestors. So, yes, I think of the Romans as the home team, whose progress I'm following with some degree of investment. But I hope that it would never become irritating cheerleading. I always thought Mike Duncan walked that line between neutrality and inevitable sympathy very well. I'd be interested in your feedback about whether you identify with that idea or if you disagree. Listener L.R. asks, During the course of the ninth century narrative, was there anyone who stood out for you and held your interest more than anyone else? And if so, why? There are two figures who stand out, Thomas the Slav and Theophilus. As you may have noticed during the series of episodes on why the Arabs won and the origins of Islam, that really hit my sweet spot. I was totally fascinated by the lack of clear answers, the mystery of it all, and the myriad possible explanations. Thomas the Slav was a similar experience. The idea that everything we knew about him might be a lie blew my mind. I was desperately trying to find books in French to help decipher that one, but uh, pasting passages into Google Translate can only get you so far. Uh, Theophilus seemed to me to be ahead of his time. He seemed to recognize the true position of Byzantium and actively sought to forge alliances and improve relations with the caliphate and bring some justice to his people. It would be wonderful to have more sources during his reign to see if that impression is correct or if I've misunderstood him. He seemed to me to have potential to be a great emperor, but his death at a young age cut that short. Connected to that, listener TM asks, How do you personally evaluate the success or failure of an emperor? 
An excellent question, and it's worth emphasizing that this is one of the few areas where I tend to give you more of my personal opinion than the rest of the show. In other words, treat it with caution. My criteria revolves around whether they left the empire better than they found it. I believe they had a responsibility to improve the lives of their people, to protect them as best they could, and to anticipate problems. These are all highly subjective judgments, of course, but that last part is particularly tricky. I'm hard on Nicephorus for not being more cautious after the sack of Pliska, whereas I go easier on Heraclius because of the unprecedented arrival of the Arab armies. But who's to say, really, whether either deserve credit or blame for their reaction to those scenarios? I make a judgment based on the historians I read and my own preferences, but those historians I read are analysing Byzantine historians, often writing a hundred years after an event with their own preferences and biases. Where I feel more confident is in criticising someone like Justinian. He saw his wars repeatedly turn to disaster, he saw scores of people rotting in the streets, and he refused to change course. He pushed on and on when clearly some soothing was needed, and the historians of his own day could see these problems. The ability to recognise the limits of what's possible is something I rate highly. Hence my comments on Theophilus a moment ago. The easy course, it seems to me, is to be seduced by the power and believe your own hype. The harder path is to remind yourself that you are just a man, and that your empire has many limitations. Emperors who looked ahead and charted a sensible course get the highest praise from me. Those who put their personal feelings first get the least. An interesting aspect of this is the succession. Here, the ability to predict future events comes into direct conflict with your most intimate feelings. Emperors who leave behind a capable successor deserve extra credit, but then how much can we criticise those who left behind selfish sons? That's it for today. I've pushed a couple of questions into the next episode, as I mentioned at the start, but aside from those and a little recap to get you situated, this is the end of the End of the Century Tour. Thanks for being with me throughout 2016. Thank you to all of those who've bought the For Sale episodes, and a special thanks to those who've added donations. You've kept the podcast going. Uh, Going forward, it's going to be 95% of what I do. So I look forward to 2017. I will be with you in week one with the next episode. For now, thank you all, and happy holidays.